Hello and welcome back to What China Wants with me, Sam Olson. And today I'm going to be interviewing, uh, not a guest, but my co-host, Stuart Patterson, on the state of China's economy. Now, obviously, a lot of people listening to uh, this podcast have a stake in in what China's economy is doing uh, around the world. And obviously, they might have exposure to uh, the Chinese economy directly itself. But one of the things that uh, everyone has in common is that no one really knows what is going on, other than perhaps Stuart. Stuart, uh, we're going to be talking today about its state and about how things have, have gone uh, right or wrong for it in the last year or so and what you expect moving forward. But if you could just sum up in one sort of sentence, is the Chinese economy doing well or doing badly at this present second? Uh, well, I'm an economist, so I can't give you a one word answer, Sam. <laughs> it's doing very badly relative to what people are used to out of China. But clearly, the relaxation of the COVID restrictions are giving China a fillip at the moment. So let, let, let me just put that in a little bit of context for you. In 2022, the year that just finished, according to the official data, China's GDP grew by 3%, which sounds uh, pretty good in comparison to, you know, our own sort of uh, growth rates. But for context... Um, with the exception of 2020, the big COVID down year, as it were, in which, according to official numbers, China's economy grew by a little over 2%, although obviously that's highly questionable. The 3% growth in 2022 would be the worst year of economic growth in China since 1976. So it does actually represent a, a, a very poor performance for China there are reasons for that, obviously, with the lockdown. But it's an indication, I think, of where the new normal will be. Uh, what's quite interesting, I think, is if you drill into the the numbers for last year, because there are a couple of trends that are apparent. The rural economy did better than the urban economy. So um, household consumption amongst the rural population was significantly stronger than amongst the urban population. Uh, where actually consumption expenditure in urban population in real terms actually shrank a little bit. The other issue is state versus private, and there's quite a stark dichotomy there. So, for example, if you looked at fixed asset investment, that made by SOEs grew by 10%, uh, whereas the private sector grew by just 1%. Those are nominal numbers. So private sector fixed asset investment in real terms probably shrank. And also there's a, a slight dichotomy there between foreign and domestic as well. So so the foreign shrank by 5%, whereas domestic funded fixed asset investment grew 5%. So what we've been saying for a long time, and I think most people would agree with us, is that the most efficient use of investment expenditure has broadly speaking been the private sector in China and Although the gap has narrowed between foreign and, and domestic, the foreign investment is also a, a sort of productivity enhancing element to that fixed asset investment. Both those areas are in retreat. Um, and that's a big cause for concern going forward. So, Stuart, that's interesting you say about the, the private sector shrinking. Well, we know for the last few years that the private sector has been attacked by the government, whether it's the property sector or, or technology. And we also know that the private sector has been a massive generator of jobs and productivity for many years now. So my question to you is, if we continue to see a political attack on parts of the of the domestic private sector, doesn't that mean that we're looking at a break on 
growth over the next few years, even with the fillip provided by this freeing up of the economy? Uh, I think the short answer is yes, it, it does. So, so the fundamental problem that China faces with its economic model is excess investment and malinvestment, low yielding investment. So China's investment to GDP ratio has been running at extremely high levels. I mean, in excess of 40% of GDP now uh, for many, many years. And that uh, over time builds up a capital stock that is much larger than uh, other countries in proportion to its GDP. And this excess investment has been far greater than we saw in Japan, for example, in the run up to its sort of economic bust in the late 1980s, early 1990s. So the incremental capital output ratio, the amount of GDP growth that you get for a unit of investment has been declining very sharply in China, reflecting the inefficiency of that investment. So if what we're seeing in China is actually an increase in the proportion of investment that is inefficient and a shrinkage in the small amount of investment that has actually been driving growth, then that's very bad news indeed, because you know the incremental capital output ratio will continue to deteriorate, leading to less efficiency. So you know, in our report that we put out for the Evenstar Institute a couple of years ago, it was entitled China's Bloated Capital Stock and the Lost Decade. What we were arguing there was that China's economy would struggle to grow at all if they didn't address the inefficiency of investment. And what this data seems to suggest is that they are not addressing that inefficiency of investment. In fact, it's getting worse. Okay, so where are the bright spots for uh, the Chinese economy moving forward? If you were sitting there as a foreign investor into China, uh, what sectors would you be most excited about? Well, I think there's a, a difference to be drawn here between the short term, by which I mean the next couple of years, and, and the longer term outlook. So if we start with the sort of obvious sectors that were impacted heavily by the COVID restrictions, domestic tourism uh, fell from about a 7 trillion yuan business, and it fell about 80% as a result of, of COVID. And obviously, when you come off such a low base, you get very spectacular growth numbers coming through. And, you know, the addition of three to four trillion yuan to GDP from that sector recovering over the next couple of years will provide a fillet to the Chinese economy. That means that it might well be able to beat the 3% growth of last year, this year and the year after potentially. So that's the sort of main sort of short term driver of better growth. Although obviously, that's contingent upon the parts of the economy that performed last year, not deteriorating substantially. And we can talk about that, but there are question marks over some of it. Longer term, looking forward, I think the jury is still out as to what role foreign capital actually has to play in China. Remember, you know, China has plenty of excess savings of its own. And at the moment, the politics behind foreign involvement in the economy uh, seem to be decidedly unfavourable. Look so looking at it from an investor's point of view, you have to consider the jurisdictional risks that you're going to be taking there. And of, obviously, the parts of the economy that the party state are trying to drive forward are almost by definition very sensitive to the party state. And therefore, foreign participation in them is either limited or tightly scrutinised and potentially not even welcome. And so that puts you know, foreign investors in, in, in a big conundrum. They do not have 
good visibility as to what kind of operating environment they will be facing over the medium term in China. So Stuart, so in terms of uh, foreign investors into China, that's all very well. But what about foreign investors outside of China reliant on the Chinese economy, for example, commodity producers in Australia or whatever? How do you think that they are going to fare in the next few years with the Chinese economy uh, in terms of what the Chinese economy needs from the rest of the world? Well, I think, Sam, in, in that particular case, there are two very strong headwinds. Uh, the first is that China's economy is going to become less commodity intensive as we move forward. And, and the mix of commodities that it uses are going to change very dramatically as, you know, steel production goes into decline, for example, but electric vehicles, you know, rise. And so that's going to lead to a sort of geographical shift and a shift in who benefits from that commodity importation. The second thing is that, you know, under dual circulation strategy, looking at China's imports through the prism of national power and great power competition. Clearly, there is a move by China to diversify supply, uh, you know, with preferred supply coming from countries over which it maintains substantial levels of structural influence in order to guarantee the solidity of that supply. And so those factors combined mean that, again, the outlook is, is very unclear for people and probably disappointing relative to the way it's performed in in the past. And so I think, you know, there is a general recognition that less growth in China, more strategic thinking from China in terms of where its imports come from, in terms of looking at the geoeconomic potentiality of imports, mean that it's a less attractive market from a pure profit maximization uh, standpoint. And how does this how does this impact the uh, relationship between China and the West? Now we've spoken many times before about the decoupling that is happening uh, between China and America, China and, and other countries in the Western Alliance. But how do you think things are going to uh, change in the next few years um, with all the things you've just said coming to fruition? So there are indications of decoupling. I think the most obvious one is in the foreign investment flows, both into China and the way that capital flowing out of China is being orientated towards the global south and away from the large sort of Western economies, the EU, United States, etc. So there is evidence there. The United States remains China's largest export market. So, you know, China has not managed to diversify away its exports as substantially from uh, politically sensitive countries as as it perhaps might have liked. Uh, But on the import side there, uh, China has moved substantially away from the EU and the US, of course, was never a great source of Chinese imports anyway. So so I think the decoupling is there. I, I don't see any evidence that that's going to slow down. I would suggest it will increase. And the reason for that is that uh, multinationals are becoming more aware of the jurisdictional risk. Uh, they've suffered, obviously, during COVID and, and from the sort of geoeconomic policies of both sides in terms of piling on costs of doing business in both jurisdictions, both Western jurisdictions and China. And that's starting to sink in. And obviously, these companies cannot reorientate supply chains in very short order. This takes years of planning. You know, Vietnam has enjoyed substantial success in attracting manufacturing, but, you know, it can only grow so fast in terms of accommodating those, that shift out out of China. And, And so, you know, this is many years in the making, but I think that psychologically that break has been made now. And therefore, it's a matter of time before it starts to flow through into data. In, in a more apparent way. 
Okay, so so Stuart, what do you think the relationship that companies um, in the West um, should have with China moving forward? Do you think that there should be optimism about investment? I mean, into China and also accepting investment from China outwards. Do you think there should be optimism about that, or do you think that, given the geopolitics around Taiwan and the perhaps further falling in relations between China and America that looks likely to happen over the coming years? Um, as America pushes back on China's rise, would you advise rather than being more investment happy, do you think that companies should be more circumspect on uh, engaging with China economically? I think very much so. First of all, just looking at a profit maximization model and, and what prospects China holds out for you. You know, th- this overinvestment that we've talked about, about a lot means that returns on capital decline because you're getting less GDP out of every unit of capital, and therefore the profitability of investment is is massively diminished. So what we've seen, for example, prior to 2021, was a stagnation of corporate profits in China over the preceding seven years. Corporate welfare from the Chinese party state to support corporates during COVID led to a rise in in corporate profitability. Uh, But that has started to unwind. So last year, for example, corporate profits amongst industrial companies fell down about 5% year on year. Interestingly, state-owned companies saw their profits grow. So the fall amongst private sector companies was larger. I wouldn't read too much into that one year simply because obviously the state tends to own a lot of the commodity producing companies such as oil and gas and coal and what have you. And those companies did well in the particular environment of higher energy prices. And so there is an element of of that baked into it. But the core structural decline in returns on capital in China is, is, is still very evident. And that does not bode well for the profitability of foreign investment in China. So even leaving aside the jurisdictional risk, uh, there are good sort of fundamental economic reasons to be very circumspect about the outlook of profitability coming from China. You've got slower top line growth, you've got a shrinking population, and you've got a bloated capital stock. Those are not good ingredients for good returns on investment. Okay, so would you be looking somewhere else in Asia uh, for your investment? I mean, is is Southeast Asia trying to capture some of China's lunch or are actually the options for international investors uh, and international businessmen and women very much restricted? I'm, I'm thinking perhaps about the garment industry or other manufacturing sectors, because it doesn't seem to me that despite there being a big call on divesting away from China, that companies have been divesting away. So then it makes me think, it's not just about the the profits, etc., but it's actually the use of China as a manufacturing hub, given its capabilities and its in its breadth of experience. That is going to be much harder for people to to move away from, rather than those people that just want to sell things into China. And, and obviously, you, you've explained very well the the difficulties there. But from a manufacturing point of view, is there is there anything that people should be worried about, and, and why aren't people divesting away from it as quickly as? as perhaps American government and others would like them to? Well, there's capacity constraint. You know, there is no single country in the world that can offer China's scale and competitiveness in terms of manufacturing. I mean, that's evident, I think. You know, China has invested a huge amount in its infrastructure around trade, so ports, rails, you know, technology. And countries such as Vietnam, Indonesia, India, Bangladesh, Cambodia, that have been taking uh, lower-end manufacturing from China for a while, 
do not have the capacity as things stand at the moment to dramatically up the quantum of, of investment there and, uh, and therefore take market share any faster than they are doing. But there is a lot of evidence, I think, that you know, greenfield investment into China in manufacturing has collapsed, that we're moving away from the China plus one uh, sort of supply chain ethos to a more diversified uh, friend-shoring or near-shoring uh, model. You're seeing uh, manufacturing investment into Mexico picking up very substantially. I think European corporates are looking at, at Eastern Europe and Africa as alternatives to the Far East, that being driven not only by geopolitics, but by sort of green agenda and sort of concern about the potential for disruption to supply chains and, and therefore the pure merits of diversification. And so I think that this is an ongoing thing and it's, uh, and it's well underway. So, Stuart, in the report you wrote for Evenstar on the property sector a couple of years ago, you said that the sector posed a critical risk to the economy, the financial sector and government finances. So how has that panned out and can the sector bounce back to drive economic growth again? So it's a good question, Sam, because over and beyond the rebound in economic activity from the opening up from COVID, we require a structural driver for, for the Chinese economy, and we require at least something that's going to compensate for the drag that is likely to come from real estate. As you rightly point out, real estate has become, had become a huge part of China's GDP. So in, in 2022, what we saw really for the first time was a decline in the level of investment in real estate. It fell 10% year on year. But what's interesting about it is that that actually didn't result in any deleveraging of China's property companies. So going into the year, um, real estate developers had total liabilities of about 91 trillion RMB, which is about 80% of GDP. That is where the systemic threat to the financial system lies. And the rationale behind China's three red lines policy was to encourage a deleveraging of these property development companies. The problem is that deleveraging your balance sheet into a declining market is incredibly difficult, which is why China had, had left it too late. So while overall investment into real estate last year fell 10%, what's interesting is that new starts of property uh, actually fell by 40%, 4-0. Sales were down 25%. But the inventory of property that is still under development, as it were, fell a very modest 7%. And it's still at about 9 billion square meters of property under development, which is seven years of sales. So there isn't really, in my view, any light at the end of the tunnel in the real estate market. We were in a, a situation where China was massively overbuilding. And what we've seen so far is a collapse in the land sales, followed by a collapse in the housing starts, the new housing starts. But what we have to do is shift this level of inventory that amounts to seven years of sales as things currently stand in order to facilitate a deleveraging of the property developers' balance sheets. And so the systemic risk remains, and I think people holding their breath for a recovery in the real estate market to be a driver of Chinese growth are, are barking up the wrong tree. Okay, Stuart, so what knock-on effects will this uh, structural decline of the property market have on other parts of the Chinese economy? Well, I, I think severe ones, Sam. You know, 
although real estate development was only about 7% of GDP directly, construction is a, a large part of GDP as well. And obviously, real estate development uh, is a source of demand for steel, for cement, and construction workers. And, you know, what you're seeing now is a big drag on household income growth as employment opportunities in China are starting to diminish. So it's been well reported, the sort of surplus supply of graduate labor coming into the Chinese uh, labor market. But at the lower end uh, of the spectrum as well, you have substantial numbers of construction workers being laid off, and that is starting to impact household income growth. So we are now starting to see a stagnation in urban household income growth, which is feeding into a stagnation of urban household expenditure as well. Um, and so, if you like, the, the, the big hope of a lot of multinationals was that China's economy would rebalance away from investment towards consumption, driven by households in urban areas. That doesn't seem to be happening at the moment, which is a big challenge to a lot of the companies that have invested heavily in their businesses in China, revolved around the assumption that consumption would grow very quickly. So we will see how the relaxation of COVID regulations impacts consumption over and beyond domestic tourism, which is the obvious place. But there's a lot to prove here for people who've been arguing that the economy will be rebalanced towards consumption because there's no evidence of it yet. Okay, well, Stuart, thanks very much for that. It's a good place to ask this last question, which is, looking ahead five to 10 years, how do you think China's economy will perform? Well, I would refer people to this report we wrote about the bloated capital stock, you know, and the scenario we paint in that report is one in which 10 years from now, in dollar terms, the Chinese economy might be really only very marginally larger than it is now, if at all. And I think that's based on, you know, very sound analysis of the impact of declining working age population combined with an inefficient and bloated allocation of capital. Well, on a slightly pessimistic note to end, but thank you very much, Stuart. We'll be back next week for uh, more What China Wants. And I think we're going to be looking more at the political side rather than the economic side next week, but to be confirmed. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you.